Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A conversation with the Vice Chairman of the Fed, Richard Clarida. Joining me again is our Chief International Economic Correspondent. I'm thrilled that Michael McKee uh, is with us. You know him from the press conference with Chairman Powell, usually bringing the, bringing the room to a bit of a quiet. And I'm thrilled that Mike could join me uh, this morning. Every moment here is precious. It is indeed, uh, Mr. Vice Chairman, an historic time. Let me ask the question that I saw in so much research and reading over the weekend. The confidence that the Fed can move the balance sheet back to normal down the road after this pandemic, after a number of years of return to economic growth. How do you get the genie back in the bottle? Well, Tom, thank you for that question and enjoy doing your show as always. First and foremost, I think we have to recognize that we're in a really unique situation. The coronavirus pandemic has, is taking a tragic human toll in the U.S. around the world. and. And we've asked people to step back from economic activity investing in public health. And so there's going to be a hit to economic activity. And what the chair, Powell, and we've indicated is we have put in place uh, these lending facilities um, under our authority to act under unusual and exigent circumstances. Uh, it's an ambitious and entirely appropriate, aggressive, and forceful use of monetary policy in these times. But to your specific question, yes, I am I'm very confident that as the economy recovers from this hit and began, begins to return and recover, that we at the appropriate time will be able to unwind these uh, programs. You know, Tom and, and Mike, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the U.S. economy. It came into the year in a very strong position, both <coughs> in terms of employment and growth and financial markets, and I'm confident we can get back there and, and at the appropriate time we can scale back these, these programs. Let me follow up on that, Dr. Clarida, and ask you this. With uh, probably billions of dollars in loans out to companies at near zero for over four years, are you ever going to be able to raise interest rates again, or are we looking at essentially the Fed doing yield curve control now? Well, right now we're not doing yield curve uh, control. What we indicated at, in our March uh, statement uh, is we're going to keep rates uh, where they are, which is basically uh, very close uh, to zero uh, until the economy is on track to achieve its maximum employment and price stabilities. And so the path of the economy is going to dictate ultimately the path of rates. But in terms of our, our programs, these facilities uh, will be in place during the period when the economy is being impacted by the virus. Uh, in the term sheets for these programs, you'll see uh, that the facilities are due to, uh, to, to stop lending in September of this year. Obviously, we can extend that as needed. Those loans will be in place. They'll have a term of several uh, years. And no, at the appropriate time, uh, I do not think uh, that uh, we will have uh, that, that will be a challenge to us uh, when it's appropriate. But again, that's a long way down uh, the road. We think where rates are now is where they need uh, to be, given where the economy is. Tom mentioned uh, the notes he's getting from people asking questions, and the one I get most often is, why did you feel it necessary to go into buying junk? Well, we have put in place no fewer than nine uh, facilities uh, over the past uh, several uh, weeks, and, and first and foremost, our, our focus in these facilities um, is making sure that credit is flowing to businesses uh, and households, and <clears throat> obviously we're, 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 we're in the commercial paper market, 
and the TALF program will be financing uh, auto loans and, uh, and credit cards. Um, in our Main Street lending program, we're going to be partnering with banks to provide financing to businesses. And so the really the vast bulk of these programs is really focused on new lending. There is an element of one of these programs uh, that will uh, that will be purchasing assets in the secondary uh, market. I think an important point for your <coughs> listeners and viewers to recognize um, is that several important companies in the U.S. Uh, were investment grade uh, up until this crisis hit. And what we've said in our programs is that, you know, if they've been downgraded after the after the date of the crisis, they will have access to these facilities. But that really is our focus in these programs. Mr. Vice Chairman, the elasticity here, the outcomes of this pandemic are extraordinary. And I'm not asking you to play epidemiologist uh, today unless you'd like to. But no. what I would suggest is we don't know the speed of outcome. What do you do if we get a more optimistic outcome? What do you do as an institution if there's a rapidity to our recovery? Well, and obviously, Obviously, Tom, we are looking at a very wide range of scenarios, as I'm sure our other central banks and, and policy makers, uh, and we have gotten a lot of bad news uh, in the last several weeks in terms of the spread of the virus um, and the impact, obviously, in the labor market with 16 million initial claims over the last uh, several weeks. So the economy is taking a hit, as I've said, because there's nothing wrong with the economy. We've asked people to step back from economic uh, activity. Uh, there are scenarios uh, that are more optimistic, <clears throat> and, and obviously, uh, we we certainly hope and pray that they materialize. If they do, uh, that'll be a good situation to be in. Uh, we will have in place programs that are essentially, Tom. What we're doing is we're building a bridge until the economy can get to the other side and begin to recover. And if that happens sooner, we'll, we'll certainly know what to do at that time. Well, let's get out on the bridge right now. Of course, you know Michael McKee's only in charge of rude questions to the chairman at the press conference. Let me ask a rude question to you. What yeah. does your bridge look like out here from the Fed meetings onward and from the minutes of the Fed we will see? How will that debate unfold within your Federal Reserve System? Well, obviously, you know, that we, those discussions are, are private. We can, talk, we can discuss, as I do, my own views. Uh, but our meetings, I think, serve a very useful uh, purpose. As you know, we've had to do a couple of meetings in March uh, by video uh, uh, conference, um, and that was necessary given the rapidity with which the situation was was changing. Uh, but, you know, at our committee, we will be discussing, I'm sure, the new facilities that we've announced and discuss about putting them uh, in place, and then we'll get a briefing from staff on the economic outlook and, importantly, looking at the scenarios, both positive uh, and uh, negative. I think the FOMC serves a very important role in, in our monetary policy discussions. The FOMC, the committee, makes those decisions. But, of course, the Board of Governors, of which I'm a member, also plays a role in actually approving and, and designing these, these programs, facilities. Well, you're the uh, model guy, and Tom put me in charge of asking the rude question, so he asked about optimism. Let me ask you about pessimism. What do okay, you see my... as the worst-case scenario, and do you think we get a damaging disinflationary impulse out of this? Well, um, I'm not going to go through scenarios uh, now. We only have 10 minutes, and that would take longer. What I will say, though, and I think it's an excellent question, because you'll see there was some, some discussion back in January and February that were we to be hit with the corona uh, virus, and it's important to remember that the first uh, fatality in the U.S. Was, was in very late February or early March. 
Um, and, and as a result, there was some speculation at the time that if we got hit with the, the pandemic, that, it, that because of supply chains, that it was an adverse supply shock, which would be inflationary. I never believed that. I never bought into that. I always thought if we got hit with a, the virus spread, that it would in that be a shock to aggregate demand, and that's what I think it is. And demand is impacting uh, very adversely. We're trying to offset that with our policies and fiscal policies playing an important role. But I think on net is disinflationary. I don't believe it's deflationary. I think we have the tools to keep the U.S. economy out of deflation um, and to and, and to support the economy through this challenging. Uh, period. But on the narrow question of is this more of a supplier demand shock, it, it's definitely more of a demand shock, I believe. Well, to follow up on Tom's question about uh, what the Fed discussion is in the future, I know you had to put the fire out, but have you not created the mother of all moral hazard now that you will end up with a lot more dangerous risk taking because everybody knows that if something goes wrong, the Fed is there to backstop them? Well, you know, my, I, I really don't believe that's the case. I think moral hazard in past circumstances when it's been associated with financial excesses or private sector excesses is obviously something to assess and think about. But in this case, this is entirely an exogenous event. People are not, businesses are closing and people aren't unemployed due to any fault of their, their own. And I think this is a clear, this is the clearest possible case that those are not relevant considerations. Again, what, what the chair has indicated and what we've said publicly is we have these lending facilities in place because of these unusual and exigent circumstances. And we'll use our authority forcefully and aggressively until we're economy, <clears throat> the economy is recovered. But at that point, uh, we'll be prepared and we'll be able to put these tools away when the economy is well on the way to the road to recovery. And I just do not see that as being an issue uh, in the present uh, circumstance. Mr. Vice Chairman, one more question quickly, if I could. There will be a point where things will be calmer, and you will be at your Columbia University with Phelps and Stiglitz and the rest talking about this. Are we forever moving away from a rules-based debate? Is discretion the future for any central bank? Well, it's an excellent question, and you and I have discussed it many times on your show. Uh, the reality of, of central banking is it's always been about, I think, con constrained discretion uh, and rules, an important part of communication and thinking about the application of uh, discretion. Uh, but again, obviously, in these circumstances, the central bank needs the discretion to put in place policies under unusual and exigent circumstances, and I think it's <clears throat> entirely appropriate that we've exercised that now. Richard Clarida, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it uh, this morning. A lot of people, John, have rationalized this theory. Dennis Gartman took it further. He said not only should you own gold, but he said in dollars, maybe not hedge it in something that will be weaker, and that would be yen and euro, and it is truly, without exaggeration, a moonshot. Gary Schilling, I would suggest, over the years, over the decades, I should say, has had the great call of long-term lower interest rates, but Gartman challenges him now with an extraordinary call on gold, and he joins us now. Dennis, thrilled that you could be with us. Uh, on, on gold, real simple here, if I didn't make the Gartman-like gains, can I get on board now? 
Absolutely, Tom. I, first of all, let us understand that I'm not a gold bug. I'm not one of those believers that the world is coming to an end, that, that uh, all currencies are going to zero, that governments are doing absolutely the wrong things. I'm, I'm actually an optimist, but I do think that the monetary authorities around the world, led by the Fed, but the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the, Bank, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, even the, the, even the People's Bank of China, have no choice but to remain expansionary. They are, they are expansionary now. They shall become expansionary in the future. They'll become even more expansionary. And as that happens, gold probably shall be the beneficiary. So is it too late to be a buyer of gold? Actually, it's just broken out above, above $1,700 per ounce in dollar, ter dollar terms, and I think it's going a good deal higher. So, as I, again, as I said, I'm not a gold bug. There are times when you should own gold. There are times when you should not. This is a time when right. you should. Other than the answer, Tiffany's, Dennis Gartman, how should I own gold? What is the best uh, way to own gold, to play well, the are, Gartman long? There are many ways to own gold. You can own gold futures, but I don't think that that's the better way. I think that there are ETFs that one can own. There's uh, at least half a dozen of them. You can hold the gold miners. I hate to give any individual uh, recommendations <clears throat> as to individual stocks because the SEC gets upset when I do that. So I'll just simply say that there are ETFs aplenty on the New York Stock Exchange and various uh, mining companies. I, I prefer the ETFs. I think it's a better way to go. Dennis, your bullish call on gold, is it basically a bet on inflation and the debasement of major currencies? It's, at least it's not a bet on inflation yet. It's a, it, it isn't, however, a bet on the debasement of major currencies. As I said, the Fed, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the, the ECB at all, have been expansionary, and they have no choice but to remain expansionary given the current coronavirus circumstance and, and the, for lack of a better term, the recession-slash-depression that the world is finding itself in. So it's actually a debasement of the currencies that, that is uh, yeah. the driving force. No question about that. So, Dennis, I'm just wondering, going forward, the main driver as far as who the buyers will be of gold, how much does this stem from central banks trying to move away from dollars? We've seen Russia do this. We've seen China do this. And how much does this stem from individuals just getting gold and putting it in their mattresses? Well, first of all, you're one of the few people who really does understand that, the, that it has been central bank buying that has, in my opinion, has been the driving force. The Russian central banker, I'm trying to remember her name. I just went blank. That's what happens when you get to be 69 years old. You forget important names. But she's been a huge buyer of gold. The Chinese have been a major buyer of gold. And now I think it's the retail that will come in and be a buyer of gold. The Indians have been the second largest buyer of gold individually. They've been locked down. And even with their lockdown, <coughs> the, the fact yeah. that gold has not given up any of its gains, and when, the, when India reopens and it shall reopen, I think there will be a marked propensity on their part to be buyers again. What's the most efficacious time frame for you to decide to own equities? Don't tell me 10 years or 20 years, and don't tell me two days or three days. <laughs> What's the time zone, Dennis, that you have for having a belief in the equity market? I, honestly, I do think I want to, well, let me say I hope that the lows have been seen. Do I think that the lows will be tested? Probably. But I do want to believe and I do think that the lows have probably been seen amidst the panic of two weeks ago. So where do I think gold, uh, stock prices will, will, will go? Yeah. I, think, I, I think that from here on out, if you, can, if, if, you can not be, if you miss the first 5% on the upside, and you already have, uh, I think from here on out you want to err upon the side of being a buyer, and I think you want to be a buyer yeah. for the next several years. Honestly, I, maybe it's just hope. Maybe it's just a belief in America. Maybe it's just a hope right. that we'll get out of this. But I do want to think that the lows have been seen. How's the Fed doing? I think the Fed's doing yeoman's work, to be quite honest. I, I think perhaps they, 
they bent a little bit to the, the president's demeanor, and, and maybe they went a little overboard, but I think that they stood up with the adult in the room when nobody else was going to be the adult in the room. I think they've led the other central banks in, in, in acting, and I, I applaud them. I, many people, especially those of us on the far right, take the Fed to task. I think the Fed should be applauded. Dennis Gartman, thank you so much for being with us. Betsy Graysick, Morgan Stanley, Head of Banks and Diversified Finance Research. Betsy, always a pleasure to catch up with you, especially on Earnings Week. So let's start with the earnings. What are you looking for in the numbers this week when many people see Q1 as stale and Q234 as almost unpredictable? Thank you so much for having me this morning. Um, I look forward to next time when we can meet in person, but uh, appreciate the question here on earnings. I think what people are really going to look for is a couple of things. Number one, what is that earnings generation rate excluding the reserve build for credit? Just to understand what the core is going into this, you know, two, three, four Q downturn, as you indicate. But then the second thing is how are the banks treating their reserves under the new accounting standard, right? Because today um, we have a new accounting standard started January 1st. And so we should be ready tomorrow, JPM and Wells report, we should be ready for, um, you know, very large reserve builds to reflect, you know, the bank management's estimates of lifetime losses. The history is they take the arcane accounting and they overdo it. They over-reserve, they over-save the money for a lousy rainy day. And then down the road, they go, oops, we oversaved, and they release those reserves, and everybody wins. Do you predict that for these banks? You know, it's so interesting of a question, Tom, because, you know, banks never over-reserve. It's always adequate, right? That's the wording, <laughs> all right? Just want to make sure. They're always adequate. And the definition of adequate is changing. Actually, I should say has changed mm -hmm. January 1st with this new accounting rule. So, so what the management teams are required to do starting in 1Q is say to themselves, what is the lifetime losses in my loan book today on March 31st in a world that has you know, flipped on its head, as we all know? So that's a big ask. As a result, people like me, we made a best estimate for what we think they'll do, but we, you know, everyone on the phone should be prepared for understanding that, you know, the outcome is going to be different. Management teams will have a different point of view than all of us, you know, sell-siders and buy-siders because they have the best knowledge of their customer set, obviously. So it's going to be very exciting earnings. Very exciting. I can't wait. Betsy, uh, very exciting, I'm sure. Uh, one area that a lot of people are focused on is consumer credit losses and sort of a view into just how bad the situation is there. What are you expecting on that front? Consumer credit is also exciting because the 15th of the month, we get <laughs> master trust data. And, you know, to your point earlier, 1Q, you know, the 1Q results aren't going to be really telling about what the forward look is going to be. And also, the forward-look numbers aren't perfect either because um, if you have been affected by COVID and you can call your bank and request forbearance, that means that your loan will not show up as a delinquency, you know, until the pandemic and the economy is back on its feet and the banks determine, hey, you know, now's the time that I can assess whether or not you're delinquent or not. So the delinquency stats and the net charge-off stats are going to be much more modest than expected 
for a while until, you know, the emergency is lifted. So the best data to look at for how the consumer is really doing on a month-to-month basis will be that master trust data. Look for the payment rate. The payment rates back in 08, 22% for a lot of banks, now at 35%, basically telling you consumers have been paying down their loans on the credit card side. That payment rate should start to fall, right? That will be your best indicator the 15th of every month. Betsy, you've touched on something really important, and that's the degree to which banks have stepped in to help consumers and businesses. And there was a quote from Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan just the other week in his letter to shareholders that really stood out for me. Knowing there will be a major recession means that we are exposing ourselves to billions of dollars of additional credit losses as we help out consumers and businesses through difficult times. There is a view, Betsy, that these banks can act counter-cyclically in a way that maybe they wouldn't have done in the past. Can you just talk to us about bank behaviour? Will they continue to do this? Or is this downturn, as it extends into two, three and four, do you expect them to pull back on helping consumers and businesses on lending to these people? Yeah, I mean, we did this work on the excess capital in the banking system and how much excess capital they have to support corporates and, you know, their, their loan box. And the vast majority of banks we cover, both my names and my colleague Ken Zerby on the mid-cap bank side, you know, they have more than enough excess capital to support 100% line drawdowns in the commercial space. Now, you know, line drawdowns were running at like 38% going into this, and, you know, we're expecting they go up significantly, but you're not going to get to 100. So there is excess capital in the system. All the things that were put into place in 08 and post-08 are there to help in this kind of environment, I have to say. So I do think that they will continue to support their customers. And importantly, look, the capital markets are open. You're going to be speaking with Vice Chair Clarita soon. Um, I mean, the Fed is part of this as well. Being in the market and helping to support the capital markets opens that up. And we saw, what, a couple weeks um, of very high issuance in IG. Some of that line drawdown frankly, could be paid down with the IG issuance that has happened by some companies already. So I, I would not say it's only banks. It's banks plus Fed, and Fed is um, helping out as well. So, Betsy, just to sort of wrap this all together, I'm wondering if you're bullish on the banks and you think that their shares have gotten overly beaten up uh, when it comes to their potential to be more profitable than people expect on the other side of this. Yeah, you know, we have an equal weight rating on the banks right now, um, you know, both in large cap, my colleague on his mid cap names. And there are certain banks that we are overweight. You know, frankly, Citi is our top pick right now. Uh, it's trading at about half book. And we think that as we get through this, uh, they can reemerge with a 9% ROE. I wouldn't say it's like minting money to Tom's words, but, you know, it's, you know, close to earning their cost of capital back again. They were just making their cost of capital before we went into this. And you're, you're sitting at a stock that's trading in half book. We're also overweight JP and B of A um, and the Amex and Discover. Betsy, always great to catch up with you, especially Wonderful. on earnings week. Betsy Grasick there, Morgan <clears throat> Stanley. Betsy, my best to you and the team. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Something happened this weekend, which is really important, folks, in the exhaustion of this pandemic, and of course, nothing like the exhaustion of the first responders, the nurses, the doctors, the endless ambulance drivers that I hear outside this Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. 
I realized that I'd really lost track of where this pandemic is. So, Paul, I got up early this Mm -hmm. morning and I really read in on a global basis as best I could on where we are. And what is extraordinary about this, Paul, is the complexity involved, the trends, the mathematics, the where are we in any given moment. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It really is, Tom, and it's dynamic. It's dynamic across yeah, the well globe. Yeah. It's dynamic across the globe. And you look at Italy, you look at China, you look at some of the uh, in, in the U.S., and it's even regionally within the U.S. as well, yeah. so uh, very dynamic. And we say that to all of you listening on SiriusXM. I guess some better news in Louisiana, but some real challenges out there. One of the experts we've spoken to is Joshua Sharfstein. He is at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health and, of course, their medical institute as well. We should say that Mr. Bloomberg is a philanthropist to his John Hopkins uh, University and his engineering program of years ago and, of course, founder of Bloomberg LP and this radio and television station as well. We spoke to Dr. Sharfstein about the state of this pandemic. So we are not yet um, at New York levels in Baltimore, um, but I certainly have heard of what you have talked about, that there is a moment um, sort of midway in the illness where uh, some people get quite sick and at that point can even um, proceed to to death. Um, And that's very scary, obviously, for the medical team. It's terrible um, tragedy in every case that it happens. And I think what people are wondering is if if there is something that can be done to focus on that moment in terms of therapeutics to prevent what may be an overwhelming immune reaction that is leading to that second decline. Help us with the idea of a secondary or reinfection. This is something out of the influenza of 100 years ago. But do you think it's a valid worry for our listeners and our viewers, this idea that there's a virus and then we re-engage with society and we come up again against the same virus a second or even a third time? There's a lot we don't know about this virus, but in general, somebody who has um, fought the virus off and recovered is unlikely to get that same kind of infection again. I think it would be very unusual for that to be the case. And even the reports of sometimes people may have a coverable virus later, are not quite the same as saying people can really get sick twice. So uh, I think that we'll have to see what the data is, but it's probably, um, you know, a reasonable assumption at this point that people who at least were reasonably sick and got better are unlikely to get that sick again. Mm -hmm. The prime minister was exceptionally eloquent. I read it in the Telegraph this morning about the nurse from New Zealand, and I believe the nurse from Portugal as well, who he literally said kept him alive. Give us an update on what you see at Johns Hopkins among the staff, the nurses, and all the others assisting the doctors. Well, it's an incredible uh, dedication um, at at Johns Hopkins and and elsewhere. They really, people, you know, have felt um, that this is their calling, this is a responsibility, the the medical center has been uh, very supportive in terms of making sure there's protective equipment and all kinds of other mental health resources for staff. Um, but, you know, this is, and it, it's not just the doctors and the nurses. There's a real sense of purpose, really, for, for everybody who's working there. And I think, you know, this is a moment in a way that many people have been training for, even if they didn't realize it at the time. 
One final question, doctor, if I could. The great fear that's out there is things here in New York and particularly in the borough of Queens have been really, really quite horrific. What's the ability of this virus to spread to secondary cities and tertiary locations across the nation? Well, what's really remarkable to me is how so many people believe that what'll ha what's happening there, meaning somewhere else, isn't going to happen here, meaning where I live. And um, nobody should really have that sense of confidence. You know, people felt like, well, it's in China, it couldn't come to Italy, it's in Italy, it couldn't come to the U.S., but, you know, it could go anywhere. Any city could be affected. Um, letting our guard down here, it would be a terrible mistake. And uh, I think that, um, you know, certainly in Baltimore and Washington and other cities, we're seeing increases in cases, and we realize how much is at stake here. And I think, um, you know, we're going to be uh, obviously in touch with people in New York and learning a lot from New York's experience. And uh, the cities that mm. think that they couldn't have this problem are really risking quite a lot. Right. Joshua Sharstein, the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health and, of course, the medical program is well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.